Welcome to Weeks When Podcasts Happen. Uh, you're here with a couple of the new standard gang. And we've just watched what appeared to be a pretty standard presidential debate. We've got some thoughts. We're going to try to focus a little bit more this time on context because it was very boring. Um, and these people are tiresome. And uh, frankly, we want to think about other things. So we're going to look broader. We're going to broaden our horizons, uh, share some key things from the debate, what we thought about them, if there's anything new. Um, but look a little bit more around the debate um, and uh, away from the debate. Uh, it's kind of like, yeah, when there's a, a problem in your life that you don't want to deal with, you just sort of look at other things. So that's what we're doing here. Um, I think first we're going to ask everybody to introduce themselves. Uh, does anybody want to start off? Yeah, I'll go since, yeah, uh, Gregory, um, he, him, he is uh, based in Detroit. And yeah, that, that's it. I think that's how we introduce ourselves here. And I'm Marcel, she, her pronouns in Virginia. My name is Ian. I use he, him pronouns. And I'm in Detroit as well. And I, I, I could sense the tension when Marcel didn't go first, whether this would be a Mar Marcel free episode. But no, the gang is all together. We're doing this. Um, we made it through these debates as a team. So yeah, I'm first topic we're just going to dig into a little bit of the context of this debate um since we first gathered and sat down and watched uh two elderly men talk over each other um much has changed really briefly uh covid uh trump got covid a bunch of other republicans got covid also much of the country uh has now we're experiencing a spike in covid things aren't going well um, the Supreme Court in, uh, now has a potentially a new justice. We're getting really close. Um, the Republicans proving that they can do in a month what the Democrats couldn't do in eight months. And then, yeah, basically you got Trump saying he's going to block further COVID relief until the uh, election, though he said something different shortly thereafter and then said something different in this debate. But somewhat of a news piece. And then another thing that has just been sort of like circulating is it seems like the Republicans tried to throw the election by attacking Hunter Biden, which is a weird choice because they've been pretty open about the fact that Hunter has some issues. But there's been a big debate about whether we should talk about it or not. And Twitter has decided that we shouldn't. But yeah, like as far as the context for this debate goes, these are some of the like the big things that have happened. It's been a turbulent month. Are there other things that were on y'all's minds just kind of headed in this debate? Like, was there something that you were looking to see here or just in the new context? What, like, what you were kind of bringing in here? Um, I think that one thing that I, I guess I was naive and not expecting Trump to just talk about Hunter Biden so much and to throw out so many things and seeing what sticks. Uh, we talked about this before we hopped on, but um, you know, throwing out the laptop, which again, that's something that's kind of been disproven as a hoax. And like Giuliani has hopped on that, um, talking about like Biden's family, not just Hunter, but also talking about like his brothers and their business dealings, all of that. Um, but I think that overall, I wasn't expecting Trump to be as coherent as he was. And by coherent, I mean, he was able to string some words together into a sentence, maybe. But he was definitely much more subdued, which was interesting to see. Um, and he was much more polite to the, to the moderator. I mean, he was still rude and still, you know, tried to cut people off and all that stuff. But overall, I was not expecting for him to be calm Trump 
which that's what calm Trump looks like, in my opinion, still like a raging maniac, but not as crazy as he was in his first debate. Yeah, I expected like Trump's newest tax return, like how he paid China. I just expected a bunch of like, like internet media to come out, like not things that have been like widely covered, but like a lot of things that were like, kind of just floating in the air that like nobody really, like you don't get to really have Trump address things. And I expected like this to be the moment where like they kind of got him on stage, like he has to say something. Uh, But yeah, other than that, I expected a a typical Trump fair. I, and like uh, disclaimer, I probably saw 25% of the debate. Uh, (laughs) Sorry guys. I expected Trump to yell over his mic being muted. Like I expected him to to not care and just speak as loudly as he could so that he could be heard. Yeah. No, I think you could almost see him. Somebody coached him is what I'm guessing. Cause I don't know. I, the last debate, as we said on this podcast, like, he seemed like he bowled Biden over. I think that that played poorly with people who I relate to less. Um, like it didn't play well with me, but just I, I thought it was an effective tactic to quote unquote win the debate. But I think that his polling numbers among suburbanites and white suburbanites in particular, who he relies on, dipped enough that someone on his team said, you can't yell over him. You got to appear quote unquote presidential. And there were a couple of times where I feel like Trump, you could see him just sort of being like, eh, eh and like wanting to bite back. But like, I I have a feeling he was told to compliment the moderator at least once, if not more. And I have a feeling that he was told like, yeah, you got to fucking cut that out if you want to be president for another four years. Though they probably said it in a nice way that flattered him. So yeah, I don't know. I could definitely, I was surprised that he listened to more of that advice. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I was shocked. Cool. Well, we got a bunch of themes uh, that we were just going to quickly like jump through here. We're not doing our, our same like two-hour-long run-through of everything they talked about. Um, but were there any overall impressions of what we got once we got to the debate? We were kind of started here, but I, I guess I can start off just a little bit here. I, I did think we got a subdued Trump, and pretty much from the word go, I was like, this is going to be less entertaining and potentially like less meaningful as a debate. Like, I don't think that it, uh, debates need to be entertaining. I don't think it's necessarily good that they're entertaining in a bad way, but watching what we watched is pretty much what I kind of expected after I saw Trump was low energy. Um, I actually made this joke to Greg. I was like, yeah, he took a bunch of steroids two weeks ago and he's been on steroids for a while. They're probably starting to wean him off of them. He's peaking too early. Like <laughs> if he, if he'd done this debate like a week ago, I think we would have really gotten some premium like rage Trump. But instead, we got sort of like, I'm coming down off of steroids, and I've been told to be quiet a little bit more, Trump. And yeah, I, I was unimpressed. There's a, I got some themes that I want to dig into, but on both counts, like the, the new theme of these debates for me personally has just been Trump accuses Biden of doing something I would like. Biden says that he would never do such a thing, announces a plan that is differently bad than Trump's plan. Trump says something that is implicitly racist, and Biden says, see, that's just, that's just bad. And then we'd move to the next topic. That's how most of these agenda items read to me. Yeah, I would agree. I would say like Trump 
control the debate. Trump didn't answer any, I, at least from the parts that I watched, the 25% that I watched, Trump didn't actually answer the questions that he was asked. He answered whatever question he felt like answering at that moment and then proceeded to ask Biden a question for the next three minutes that he had. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I think that Kristen did a good job, as I said earlier, um, and that, again, the bar is very low because the uh, other two debates, uh, both the presidential and the vice presidential debates, the moderators weren't weren't good at all, or, or in some cases they were terrible. Uh, but I do feel like, um, you know, Kristen, you know, she would ask the question, Trump would go and say something totally crazy and talk about something, you know, accuse Joe Biden of something. And then she would again, try to get him to answer the question and he wouldn't, or he would like give like a one or two word answer. And then, you know, she would just kind of move on, which I, I don't know if it's really effective to try to get him to answer a question because he's not going to. Um, but also it's, it's frustrating when, yeah, you do feel like he's controlling the debate. Like there were plenty of times where, he would say, uh, you know, she would be ready to move on to the next question. And he would be like, no, wait, hold on. I've got to respond. I've got to respond. And whatever he had to say, I mean, it obviously didn't add anything to the discussion, but also it was usually a lie or an exaggeration. So I don't know. It was, um, he definitely did like try to get Biden to answer some questions. And like, in some cases, Biden did take the bait, which was annoying, but also in other cases, he was like, no, I'm not going to do it. Like there was one point where he just said, like the uh, moderator asked him to respond or if he wanted to respond, he just said no. And he moved on. So I was like, good job, Joe. Proud of you for that. I I think that's a good point, I guess, is what I'm ruminating on is, as you talk through each of the, as each of you talk through this a little bit is I think that like, yeah, Trump, I think the moderator did do a better job than either of the other two. I think Trump did sort of mold the questions around himself. I did think Biden showed the most control over the situation that I've seen him show in any debate, like including the uh, primary debates. Like I felt like he got run over in the first debate. And in this one, he was, he at least had a few more like, I'm not going to talk about that or "Ah," like just, and you need to have some of that. If you're going to argue with a con man blustering like pile of person that is Trump like and so I I think it was good to see that at least he still had some of that and like that implies that he has the capacity to do the job of president but yeah no I think maybe we can dive into some of the topics we're not going to go through all this this is just sort of a a list of things that really hit us is there anybody wants to start with one uh just uh that in particular was near and dear to your heart this is kind of an overall just kind of um, critique of the way that Joe Biden responded when Trump would say something like, oh, you were in office for eight years. Um, you know, you should have done this, this, and this. And anyone who knows the job of the vice president, again, that's kind of like your sidekick. Um, they don't really push policy except for in some rare circumstances, cough, cough, Dick Cheney. Um, and so... You mean the real president? You're <laughs> right. I know. Real president. Um, but yeah, so for Trump to keep on saying that, obviously it's it's a dumb point, but also 
I feel like he was trying to get Biden to say, you know, well, I wasn't really in control, which I think that Biden might have said, like, at some points, like, basically, like, hey, like, that was kind of Obama's rodeo, like, this is my rodeo. And I just feel like, um, you know, it just would have been more effective if more effective if Biden had just been like, look, like, let's be honest, the vice president, you know, their role is to support the president and their policy and their agenda. And now that's why I'm, you know, running for president. Like if he had just been a little bit more coherent with that point, instead of just being like, oh, well, that wasn't really, you know, my, my place or whatever. I feel like that would have been um, better for Biden. But also, isn't that, I don't know if that would have been better. I mean, I guess we're talking about like the average American that might have been better. But like, I feel like for me personally, it's like he chose Kamala as a strategic choice, right? To like be more appeasing to the black community. And people were like, he needs to pick a black person. He needs to pick a woman. Uh, And for him to then go back and say, oh, the vice president really is just here to to hang out, doesn't really help on his pick, right? Well, I agree with that in some respects, but we also have to look at it in kind of a different way. Like Joe Biden to Barack Obama was, you know, this is like a seasoned statesman who has been in politics for four decades, like that kind of thing. Whereas with his vice presidential pick, he had to pick somebody who was younger and who has like a, um, you know, like a bright future, a long future ahead of them um, for, uh, you know, for the vice presidency and eventually probably the presidency. Because I, I think that we've mentioned it before on this podcast that Biden should probably just be a one term president. And so in that sense, he would have to pick somebody who is ready to step up and lead the party and possibly, you know, run for president and be the next president. Whereas his role, again, was kind of trying to uh, lend legitimacy to a young candidate who was at the top of the ticket. That's my, you know, opinion. Facts. I would agree with all of that. I mean, yeah, they're playing a political game, but I don't, thing yeah it's just kind of like this idea of pulling the veil off of like what they're actually doing uh which again i mean even to your point that like he was a more seasoned statesman it's like how can you be the more seasoned one but then turn back around eight years later or was it 12 years later and say oh at psych it wasn't i didn't do anything Yeah, I think that that's a case of, and we've seen it like time and time again throughout even the primary season and now where Biden does try to take credit for things like the bailout and for like leading the charge for getting um, Obamacare passed. Like, so he tries to take responsibility or tries to, you know, play up his role in some of the bigger accomplishments of the Obama administration. But then at the same time, he will turn around and be like, oh, you know, I was basically just vice president. Like, don't blame me for, you know, things like kids in cages and stuff like that. Or, you know, that's kind of where I see him trying to play both sides, which, I mean, that's what you do as a politician. No facts. What I also found interesting was like, uh, and I was was just talking to some folks about it is, especially like in urban areas, there's a lot of Barack Obama ads of Obama telling you to go vote and typically go to vote for Biden. 
and Trump kind of turned that on his head and being like, hey, like, what did you enjoy? Like every, he'd be like, what did you and Barack Obama do? What did you and Barack uh, Obama Hussein do? Like what, and basically turned Biden's biggest uh, selling point to like minority communities into like a problem. Yeah, no, definitely. And we saw him do that in the debate with the crime bill. Um, you know, he said like that 1994 crime bill, you know, you locked up black men, blah, blah, blah. And that's why, you know, black men basically are like jumping from the Democratic Party and they're coming towards the Republican Party and they're like coming, you know, to support Trump, which I mean, he's not wrong. We're seeing uh, like record highs um, of black men supporting Trump, which is a whole nother. I don't even want to get into it. But um yeah i mean we definitely did have seen like him basically trying to to turn yeah his like biggest thing which was being the first black president um vice president trying to kind of turn that on his head and again him saying that he's done more for black people than any president besides abraham lincoln um you know again he's clearly trying to i wouldn't say court the black vote but really trying to i guess maybe um you know, sure up his, his, um, his popularity with some, you know, black men who are turning to support him, like 50 Cent and Ice Cube and other idiots out there. Yeah, I'm calling them idiots because they're dumb. Like, stop. But anyways, yeah. I, I, could, I just throw in something really quick. I think, uh, yeah, I think Ice Cube hasn't, like, that was mostly the Trump administration being like, we met with Ice Cube. Ice Cube has not endorsed Trump and is like pretty adamantly opposed to much of his policies. Trump, or Cube was definitely out there saying like, yeah, I met with Trump and basically like, this is the plan that I brought to him. And like, that's, that's my issue with Cube. Okay. He hasn't like explicitly endorsed him, but also he's basically saying like the Democrats haven't done anything for black folks this whole time. So, you know, kind of like maybe give Trump a chance. That's the impression I get. I okay. could be totally wrong. No, I mean, like, I think I'm, I'm also not, heavily researched on the topic. I just listened to an interview with him where he was like trying to quote unquote set the record straight. So yeah, which to be fair, the Democratic Party hasn't done much. Though I don't count Barack Obama's presidency in that. I think Barack Obama did do a lot for the black community. Just like he didn't, you know, people were expecting Barack Obama to be it. Like he was gonna be like Moses and part the racist seas and take us out of uh, Egypt and like that didn't happen. Uh, I was talking about this with some folks earlier though, is like, to be fair, because Trump needs to be liked, like that's his biggest personality trait is his need to be liked. I do think as like communities, we could probably get more out of Trump than we could get out of the average president because he will at least sit down and talk to you. I think the problem on the back end is that Trump is still just a president um, and a president who doesn't understand the actual powers of the presidency. And because of that, he will try to make something happen, but the legislators who are the same Republicans who have been in office forever will write bills that'll make Trump look good on the front end, but actually don't accomplish anything on the back end. But it it like more people have met more like quote unquote like I mean I, let's call them like just black celebrities have met with Trump than anything else. 
I do think it's a problem that we keep treating celebrities like they're leaders in the in the black community. I honestly don't care what Ice Cube was talking with Trump about. He does not have like the the wherewithal to like discuss national policy for like an entire community that spans across literally the entirety of the country. Uh, nor do I care. I don't even know why 50 Cent is even a thing because 50 Cent is literally a joke. Like, like why are we even taking anything 50 Cent said seriously? If it was the funniest thing for him to say, go vote for Biden, 50 Cent probably would have said that. I feel like Trump honestly sees these Black celebrities as props, and I don't think that he ever intends on doing anything for them that would actually, or anything for the Black community that will actually benefit them. Like, again, when we see who he meets with, he does meet with these uh, Black celebrities who are wealthy and who are, I mean, if we're just honest, they're out of touch with the average Black American. So when he's talking to them, you know, whatever he's talking about is really very much centered on their celebrity, centered on the fact that they're Black, and centered on the fact that they are rich. And then even when we do see, like, regular individuals, like uh, the woman whose sentence was commuted thanks to, you know, Kim Kardashian West meeting with President Trump, like, again, that was something that he did so that he could tout it. And so he could say, like, look, I got this Black woman out of prison. Like, everything that he does when it comes to the Black community is, it comes at a price. And I don't necessarily think that we as a community could, you know, ever be in a situation where we're going to be able to meet with him and be like, look, this is what like the actual black community needs. Like, I think that he only wants to meet with figureheads and people who he thinks, you know, again, he's thinking like you're saying like 50 cent and like ice cube, like not any, like, you know, I don't think that they're seen as leaders or in touch with the black community. So the fact that he's meeting with them or he's trying to tout them as basically like representatives for the black community, again, goes to show just how out of touch he is and how desperate he is just for votes from black people. And that's all he wants. He does not have the interests of anybody really, you know, whether you're black or white or Hispanic, like he does not have the interests of anybody at heart. All he cares about is himself, and maybe some of his family. Sorry, Tiffany, you're not really included in that. Um, But yeah, well, I'm just being honest. That's fine, Tiffany. (laughs) She's out there, again, this is off topic, but she was out there, uh, you know, trying to basically connect with the LGBT, oh, excuse me, let me leave out the T because she left out the T, the LGBTQI community. She was out there trying to connect with them, you know, talking about her father doing this and doing that for the community. And it's just like, that's, again, clearly not true. But, you know, anyway, daddy's love. Tiffany, please like and subscribe. Uh, if you are listening, uh, we'll convert you. Now, that's how she that's how she uh, gets, you know, attention from her father by trying <laughs> to go out on the campaign trail so she can, can continue to do that. Like, you're both bringing up, like, a lot of issues that I think are very interesting in like 17 different ways. But I think like one of the pieces here that I find very interesting is the idea of a constituency breaking from the Democratic Party that is not easily explained by neoliberal understandings of identity. Mm-hmm. I think um, the idea, like the Democrats are very good at this point of identifying a Bernie bro, even if that Bernie bro is not the person that they think it is. <laughs> like Bernie had a very diverse uh, support base, but they characterize them all as white men. 
a lot of problems there, but they have a whole narrative for why those folks wouldn't vote for a Biden presidency or wouldn't suck it up and support the Democrats. They don't have as good a narrative for anyone else. And so I think, you know, this may be a shot across the bow. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of people doing good work to make sure that Trump doesn't pick up a particularly large amount of the black vote. I think there's a lot of folks who are really like, you know, making those arguments and doing that work in the community. But yeah, I'm interested in like what happens when doing nothing for four decades gets people fed up enough that they leave the party, either not voting or voting for the other party just out of spite. I, I would say in much the same way that the quote unquote white working class was supposed to have in the last election, where it was sort of like, I haven't gotten fuck off from the Democrats. I'll go just roll the dice on this hand grenade of a person. This like, you know, enough people who had enough, who could put up with enough racism decided that a hand grenade was better than a safe option based on everything they'd seen from the Democrats. I, I'm interested as that expands across different demographics, how they respond. Oh, I'll just say quickly that I think that in the way that it relates to like the white working class, like in the last election, specifically white women, kind of being um, able to overlook Trump, Trump's sexism, you know, uh, and, you know, again, just asserting their whiteness. Like, I think that that's kind of what's happening with Black men. Um, I think that they are overlooking, like, Trump's racism, and they see, like, his kind of macho persona, um, and especially when, I mean, I hate to say it, but, like, a Black woman's um, at, you know, the top of the ticket um, for the Democratic Party. I think that some of that, like, masculinity is what is driving some black men and again this is not all black men black men i love you i come from a black man i'm gonna marry a black man like this is not against black men but there are some black men i think that are really really uh put off by um you know kamala harris and you know her being quote unquote a strong black woman um and they would rather kind of you know yeah bargain uh with you know a racist who seems to be like really manly is a bad word but that's i mean i guess that's kind of what he's trying to present um that yeah they would rather take that over you know the possibility of you know again biden and the democrats you know kind of taking black people and black men for granted um you know again as they have for decades yeah that's a lot this is a lot to start the only reason I can see that the Democratic Party couldn't, I mean, maybe and Mars, both of you like correct me if I'm wrong, but like it seems very obvious to me why certain, my, certain minorities within America like are breaking off from the Democratic Party. Uh, one being the biggest thing is that like typically Republicans just don't even reach out to us. Like there's literally no agenda and even now, like literally, like from I think it might have started with Bloomberg, uh, but this is like the first election that I've seen where they've been very specific and explicit in being like, "This is my plan for Black people. Here is what I'm going to do for you." And maybe it even started with Trump being like going to black, going to a black church and being like, "What do you have to lose?" Like literally, nobody has even come and told us like we have something to lose. And this is the first time that even though Trump, and I guess Trump is less explicitly racist than like people like tried to make him out to be. I, I still think he's racist, uh, but it's not so much in like, you know, hot mic racism as it is like just everyday actions and policies, um, which is probably worse, but like not what people take as the gotcha. Uh, 
But this is the first time like we haven't had a person who's just been like, we actually just don't care about what you guys have going on. Because when I think about like the various minorities in America, most of them will vote. Most minorities that come to America tend to fall within the same socioeconomic class and people tend to vote their class more than anything. Because when you look at like Latinos, you look at like Western Latinos who like live like close to the border, they're voting Democrat because Democrats are allowing them like a higher higher access in the world versus if you look at like Miami Cubans, they tend to follow more along the white lines of like, oh, like I have mine, you should come in the country correctly and get yours. And like they tend to own businesses and they want those those type of tax breaks and things like that. Whereas like black people, we haven't been allowed to, we've won, we, we span across more classes and also there's less of a, a, a concentrated identity. So like when you give us something, a plan that comes specifically for us because we span so many classes to give us something that specifically for black people allows more people to, to fit in. And to your point, like you said, black women, end up being at the bottom of the totem pole for everything. So they they tend to vote Democratic because there's nothing that speaks to both their womanhood and their blackness and their like, you know, other socioeconomic statuses. So they they tend to take that hard party line where black men do see themselves as, you know, one paycheck removed from being a rich man and therefore they'll vote with their pocketbooks and every other thing. I don't think it's necessarily and I might be wrong. Maybe I just don't know the black men, but black men that I know are like, oh, I'm not voting for Biden because of Kamala. They're like not voting for Biden because of the crime bill. And Kamala's the top cop. And at least Trump is talking to them where other like he's talking to other rich black men. He's talking to Kanye and Kanye's wife. He's talking to Steve Harvey. He's talking to Ice Cube. Like they most people see themselves as closer to being Ice Cube than they see themselves as closer to being, I don't know, the the part, like, yeah, somebody else. Yeah, I mean, I guess I can agree with that on some level. I also think that there's also uh, this kind of unspoken thing. And I mean, it goes back to, again, just relations between the relationship between Black women and Black men. I think that a lot of Black men probably wouldn't want to admit that they're not necessarily, um, you know, voting for Kamala Harris because, or, you know, interested in seeing her in a top position because she's a black woman. But I also think just like the scrutiny that she has um, experienced from a lot of black men, like, yes, they will say, oh yeah, I'm not voting for her because she locked up a lot of black men, blah, 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 which that's not fully true. Like, yes, there obviously were men who were black men who were incarcerated under her tenure as district attorney and then also as attorney general, because that's what her job is, whether that's a legitimate job or not, obviously we can debate. But I think that um, the bigger issue is that a lot of the uh, aspersions that are being cast towards her and a lot of the issues that black men are taking with her, they wouldn't necessarily have those issues with uh, a white woman who were in her place or even a white man who was in her place. I personally think that, I, again, I'm not going to say that I understand the psyche of black men and of course, black people, black men, black women, they're not a monolith. 
But I think that that also speaks to, again, kind of like an underlying tension, just like within the black community, that there's this kind of unspoken, yeah, tension um, between black men and black women. Um, and that can be something that's difficult to, to grapple with. And I also feel like we're kind of getting off point but i guess that that's fine ian isn't it yeah no i actually wrote down <laughs> in my notes thank god we're not talking about the debate because um, yeah i think this is far more interesting than debating whether or not joe biden saying he hates fracking for the or he loves fracking for the 76th time is good for my psyche i, I think like an interesting point here is just maybe just stepping outside of like this specific election i'm interested in like the it's not just them but like the proud boy effect where like the proud boy are proud boys are an example of white nationalist thinking that incorporates non-white people and i think that how that potentially expands is a is a kind of like a potential keystone to what post-trump light or yeah one potential keystone to what post-trump life looks like since yeah i think the white fascist base is too small to wield power in the way it once did and they need to expand in some way and I don't know how the Democrats plan, like currently their plan to respond to most of these threats seems to be to denounce people as like either not being black or not caring about their community or not being like something that they clearly are, which is their identity. And they need to have another, potentially another argument about why people are defecting or need to deal with why they're defecting in a way the Democrats appear currently to be incapable of doing. I think that that, yeah, that speaks to a lot of times when people are talking about the Proud Boys, they're like, oh no, they're not like a white nationalist. Like they're not, like they have, you know, people in their ranks that are, you know, different colors, different ethnic backgrounds and stuff like that. And I think that what's interesting about that is that, yeah, they are kind of playing to, trying to play to people's uh, other sensibilities. Like obviously they're a white nationalist organization, but they understand that in order to, uh, you know, gain numbers and things like that, they have to play to some other things and like what they're playing to is like misogyny and toxic masculinity in order to recruit folks to their ranks in order to again appear to not be a white nationalist org but also to you know grow in numbers and I totally agree that that's something that again the Democrats and liberals and you know again people on the left really need to start reckoning with yeah and I think that's the the biggest problem is that they are just saying we're not Republicans I remember I remember one time in like organizing, being asked the question like, what is the democratic identity? And nobody in the room, not that nobody in the room, but people struggled to come up with a singular identity. But if you ask what the Republican identity is, it's conservative, it's religious, it's family values, it's, you know, strong borders, it's all these very specific things because Democrat, or not Democrat, but Republican issues tend to be yes or no questions and the answer is often no uh do we want gun control no do we want abortion no uh do we want immigrants no uh where democrats are not the most progressive but they tend to lean towards being progressive and trying to uh be inclusive and like expand the base which like you said like if you it's like oh we include black people oh you don't want to be included then you're probably not black i think that's a struggle in language just within how i think i think that's a symptom of white supremacy in general in this country in that 
we don't really know how to have nuance uh, as minority communities. Like within every community, there's like, if you're black and you, you quote unquote act white, you go towards like, you know, whiter things or like believe more white supremacy, you're an Oreo. If you're Asian, you're a Twinkie. Uh, we have all these things to like say that you don't align with like the typical view. We don't allow for like nuance in minority communities, which like tends to shun those people and push them towards things like Proud Boys and the like. That's very true. Yeah. And I think that that's an issue with, yeah, the Democratic Party and yeah, what both you and Ian are speaking to is this very um, like narrow view of like what a person of color should believe in. Um, and then again, yeah, when a person doesn't conform to that, um, they're, you know, kind of othered. And, you know, though I obviously believe that, you know, one party has uh, the interests of people of color and Black people specifically, they hold that hold it to a higher standard. Um, at the same time, like, you do have to look at, like, the proof of the last uh, however many years, 30, 40, 50 years, and you do have to see, like, not much progress has been made. So that's a reason why, um, possibly, you know, people are, are kind of defecting. And again, I mean, we hear that rhetoric over and over again with Black conservatives, like, what have the Democrats done for you? You know, like all that kind of stuff. And in some respects, it's true. Um, so I do feel like, you know, the Democrats in general really need to stop taking their base, um, you know, people of color, but specifically Black women, they need to stop taking them for granted. And they really need to, again, empower them not just put them, you know, in positions where they think that they're going to, you know, look nice and it's going to look like they're in power, um, but also like actually doing the work to listen to what their needs are. And then that's the way that, again, you make sure that you actually keep the people who are loyal to your party. And you don't have an opportunity for people to be like, oh, well, what have they done for us? Because that is the truth. Like, I mean, as much as I hate to admit it, like, yeah, there is some uh, validity to the argument that Democrats haven't done much for Black people in general. So something needs to be done. Um, and, you know, I don't know if this election and, you know, this candidate is going to be the one to actually, you know, be able to say, like, yes, I've done this for the Black community or I've done this for all communities. And this, you know, happened to also really help the Black community. I think that that wasn't the point I was going to make earlier um, with the last podcast is that, a lot of times it feels like um, in the you know past, I don't know, maybe four or eight years um, that a lot of the conversation has been around like the white working class and not really acknowledging that if black people in general, but specifically if black women are doing well in this country, then everybody's going to do well. And so again, it's kind of a, um, you know, like kind of fixing, I guess, the message and also just like I guess, trying to be more inclusive, but also being more intentional and saying like, hey, if the lives of Black people, of Black women are better, then everybody in this country is going to be doing better. And like that, that explicit message being okay, and that explicit message being broadcast versus, oh, you know, we're just trying to look out and make sure that, you know, the white working class is fine. And, you know, they've been really disillusioned with everything that happened during the Obama administration. Like, 
it's just, again, making sure that we're not only taking white feelings into account, but also just making sure that the party and that this country is inclusive and is really trying to work for everybody and not just a certain subset that, you know, is feeling like they are losing ground because black people are getting elected to high offices. I'm curious how we're going to title this episode, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting also to think like in the context of what you're saying there, Marshall how the Democrats almost operate as like a disaffection machine. Like the Republicans for the last, I would say at least 20 years, at least since the George Bush era, haven't really offered to improve people's lives. They've offered them tax breaks. They've offered them like, maybe you'll get rich. Maybe that'll just happen for you. (laughs) And if we let rich people get as rich as possible, maybe there'll be more rich people and you'll be one of them. Like that's essentially their pitch. uh, It seems like to me. And perhaps in some ways, that's a pitch that's like, if everybody's going to be racist, you might as well be rich. That appeals to some folks. The Democrats appear to offer overly means-tested programs that don't really reach the people that they're meant to reach. And I'm just, I'm curious what happens over time where the Democrats almost seem tailor-made to take people who are interested in doing things bring them into the Democratic Party, chew them up, spit them out, and have some of them resignedly vote for the Democrats, some of them stop voting, and some of them join the Republicans. Um, and the Republicans seem to like kind of sit in the corner and really not do a ton of, in, like Greg was mentioning, some more intentional outreach recently, but traditionally have done just sort of like, we've got our 50% of the population and we're good, thank you. And I'm just curious, in, the, in, the, in a declining empire, in a uh, shifting demography, um, but a like ineffective Democratic Party, what that struggle looks like looking into the future. Like, again, past this election, like my, my opinion is that I think Joe Biden has a really good chance of winning this election, um, unless the polls have yet again failed us. But in a longer term sense, I just, I don't understand how treading water for another decade or two as things decline and as the material circumstances of the United States change as a country, how it's a tenable position and then just how they potentially could like yeah how each side could adjust i think is like a really interesting question yeah no i mean i agree with you on that like i feel like people unless you're born rich you're born a democrat unless you're born white and poor in which case and rural in which case you're inducted into the republican party until you learn that oh fuck they don't give a shit right yeah i mean yeah in which case like there's a certain point at which Again, you're you're supposed to vote with your interests. We just get stuck in like there are only two parties, and it's about which interest is most important, and not necessarily the the individual policy. And there's a certain point in which I guess living in a capitalist system, money is the ultimate interest. So once you get to a certain level, like you get to be fifty cent, you're like ah, I actually rather have cheaper taxes than to have civil rights. The thing is, I don't think the, as far as like, how do the party shift? I don't think the Republicans ever need to shift. They are cutthroat and ruthless and are forever pushing the entire system more and more to the right until they can, you know, basically get their Christian religious state of of the ultra wealthy and the Democrats kind of just get dragged along for the ride. Yeah, I think that it ultimately comes down to it feels like the Republican Party as, you know, wayward and as uh, insensitive and cruel as their policies are, like, at least they have policies and they like have a plan like we've seen like this long term plan 
that started probably, you know, with Reagan for them to really um, get an ultra conservative, um, you know, uh, Supreme Court and to have, you know, federal judges be, um, you know, uh, placed on the bench who are ultra conservative and just kind of like this, yeah, long-term goal of uh, being able to really shape policy and shape the laws of this country. And it just doesn't feel like the Democrats have a long-term strategy. And if they do, then I have no idea what it is and it's failing miserably and I'm not happy with it. Um, but yeah, that's just what it feels like. It always feels like, yeah, the Republicans have had some sort of strategy and no matter what, like, like you said earlier, Greg, like, you know what the Republican party quote unquote stands for, but the Democrats are kind of all over the place. And there's a lot of invite fighting between like liberals and like, you know, more conservative Democrats and then also like progressive Democrats. And like, that was even seen in the debate. Woo, we're getting back to the debate, but you know, that was um, seen in the debate. Like, you know, Trump said that AOC like crafted some one part of, you know, Joe, Biden's policy, he called them AOC plus three, which is really disrespectful because they're all women of color. And the fact that, you know, two of them are black women and he's just like AOC plus three, like that's really disrespectful. But anyways, I literally um, did not know what he was talking about. I thought that was like another inside like QAnon joke. Or- oh, no, no. He's talking about the squad. Oh, and instead okay. of the squad, yeah, he was he was saying AOC plus three. But he was, you know, again, basically saying that they are crafting all of his policies and he called, you know, Kamala like super liberal, not even liberal, like super progressive, like leftist. And it's like, clearly that's not true. But again, he's using all of these tactics to, again, kind of exploit this, this view of like the Democrats being a party that's like moving way too far left, which one, it's not, and two, like that's not a bad thing. But again, he's using kind of like the conservative playbook to um you know tarnish quote unquote joe biden's reputation and again it goes back to the fracking which is always brought up and a lot of the other things that you know trump says that you know basically the extreme democrats the extreme you know liberals and progressives are for that joe biden again has to come out and say oh no i'm not for that which is one of your favorite things ian that he does is he will adamantly deny that he is for something that would make you as a progressive or leftist voter happy um and i i get tired of that because i feel like he walks into that trap and i also feel like why Joe Biden, are you trying so hard to appeal to conservatives and to, you know, maybe moderates, but probably not? Like, why are you trying so hard when you should be trying to cater to the people who are in the same party as you? And again, whose ideals were not will not only push this nation forward, but will actually save the planet. Because again, we are moving towards climate catastrophe. But nobody seems to really want to acknowledge that when it comes to the debate stage. God bless Marshall for like just circling us around, just like just turning the wheel on the bus, bringing us back to the debate. God bless black women. <laughs> I had no idea how we were getting back here. Yeah, I don't know if we should go through everything from the debate. I feel like we have hit pretty strongly on the crime bill and some of Trump's response to Black Lives Matter. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. Um, that's a lie. It's going to be a minute. But yeah, two other big things we had. Um, one, I got to mention every time, uh, is Joe Biden's continuing terrifying stances on foreign policy. Like, I do not support Trump. 
But when Trump and Biden talk about foreign policy next to each other, Trump sounds scarily like reasonable. Like when Trump talks about North Korea and he's like, yeah, we negotiated with them. It's better than a war. That's, you know, seems like a good policy to me. That sounds a lot more reasonable than Biden being like, you got to tell China what's what. We got to fly planes in their airspace. We got to, you know, put boots on the ground. We got to fuck with them. They got to know that we're the big dog. Like, I don't know. I find that immensely troubling. It doesn't mean I would ever support Trump. I just think that like a protectionist who doesn't invade other countries is potentially less damaging than somebody who's trying to defend an empire that just doesn't have the might to defend itself anymore. Like, I don't know if a weakened empire lashing out at a rising like superpower is a potentially good idea given every other time that's happened in history. I, I don't know. There would be, any thoughts on the foreign policy conversation there? I would push back to say that America is weak, or at least its military might is no weaker than it's ever been. I think we can still scrap it out with the best of them. I think one, Trump's full of shit. So yeah, he sounds sane, but also like Trump has accomplished nothing as far as for him. The only thing Trump has accomplished is weakening our soft power so that even if we were to if he were to like even be able to successfully enact any of the diplomacy he's talking about like we just don't have the the ability to do the things that he wants to do anymore or at least not that we had since before he came in office um i would just say that i do agree uh, that in this respect you know when trump was saying yeah basically we just negotiate and stuff like that like yes that does sound reasonable but then when you think about the fact that the reason why he's willing to even meet you know with kim jong-un and the reason why kim jong-un was meet, willing to meet with him is because there was a lot of flattery going on there was a lot of butt kissing going on that's not what i wanted to say but i'm trying to you know keep it appropriate uh, <laughs> And and, um, so, you know, that's why uh, I feel like these, you know, meetings have happened. And I agree with Greg that like, again, yeah, a lot of our soft power is gone. Like, you know, pulling us out of the Paris Climate Accords, pulling us out of the Iran nuclear deal, like all that kind of stuff is like really, really important stuff that I feel like the Obama administration, Obama-Biden administration was able to accomplish. And while I do definitely agree that I hate the way that Biden talks about kind of like asserting our will as Americans and stuff like that. Like that sounds very much, it's like a very Republican, like conservative, um, you know, kind of talking point. But I, I do agree with the fact that he is basically saying that I feel like he's saying that he wants to, in some ways, reassert America's stage or um, status on the world stage. And for me, it may not be what he means, but for me, that means, you know, going back into some of these agreements and really trying to rebuild a lot of these relationships that have been ruined over the past four years, thanks to Trump. Um, And also, you know, again, continuing to, or not continuing to, but beginning to go back to, you know, our policies of dealing with, you know, people like MBS and Kim Jong-un and Putin and stuff, like dealing with them in a way that's, I don't want to say harsh, but that's firm. And that really shows them that, you know, okay, like you may have gotten away with a lot of crap with Trump, but, you know, now that there is actually a functioning human 
adult in the you know office hopefully that will mean that again um there are kind of some lines drawn in the sand where people can depend on us if they're our allies and then if they're not our allies then you know they kind of look to us with a level of respect or like they expect us to follow through um with some of our you know whether it's like sanctions or whatever again i'm not I don't agree with when Biden's talking about, yeah, flying into airspace and showing our military might, but I do agree with, again, trying to send a strong message, whether that's through economic sanctions or whatever, in order to kind of reassert our place in the world, which kind of sounds bad because I'm not one of these, like, I'm not into American exceptionalism and all that stuff. But at the same time, I mean, I feel like our status as a nation, and, you know, we talk about this a lot being on the edge of crumbling as an empire, but I feel like there's uh, maybe some relationships that can be repaired before we, you know, hop off that cliff. Yeah, and I would say I'm I'm with you, like, I'm not really about American imperialism, but we're not quite talking, we're not talking about America going into Vietnam here. We're talking about, like, China and Russia being, like, superpowers, nuclear superpowers, with like just not nobody has as much military spending, but with like similar military might, uh, and China is quite literally like annexing islands, and like both China and Russia are fighting proxy wars in other countries. Like they are following America's blueprint on how to like you know assert world dominance in absence of America's uh, might. And I do think that it's not necessarily the worst thing for us to match their force to let the like to you know reassert ourselves to at least keep a balance of power rather than let them fill the vacuum of America. I think that well, what that what that looks like is complex because I think that yes, other superpowers exerting their power on the world stage doesn't just mean that like the former superpower should not exist. And doesn't necessarily mean that the former superpower not existing is always good. I do think, though, that like, I think that there's a good chance that if Joe Biden were president over the last four years, we would have intervened in Venezuela or that we would have intervened competently in the Bolivian elections. I think that both of those would have been the worse for the world. Um, I think that... While we may have the military, I think we lack some of the industrial capacity to really challenge China consistently at this point. And, you know, that may, you know, we, we could maybe win a proxy war too. Um, but I think that like, if we're looking at a rising power versus a falling power, we're definitely the falling one, um, not, not the, the rising one. And so I think that, yeah, I, I don't think that there, I have like, to, like there's not a left-wing foreign policy that I'm going to be able to ad lib in this moment at 1210. Um, but I do think that the idea of America being this world cop that needs to make sure that China does things by what they claim are international rules, but are American rules. They're, they're, they're made and shaped by and for Americans. And I think that a expansive, more expansive definition of what international law and international interest looks like would be for the benefit of mankind. I think that there's a, an overlap, a very heavy overlap between the two parties in some ways. And like, 
Trump has expanded the drone program. Trump has continued to use violence to enhance, to like enact America's will. He's backed away from large scale conflict against other states, potentially like on a total death count. That's good, but like it's not necessarily like actually changing the policies. And then I think that Biden would follow pretty similar policies and would potentially like invade a place like or, you know, heavily influence uh, military officers in a state like Venezuela. And I think that, like, yeah, foreign policy in general presents sort of like a non-option in our elections. Just they both always have horrendous views. I just I would rather that Biden at least didn't lead with them as some sort of proof that he was a great leader. And just, yeah, you're going to have horrible imperialist views. You're the American president. That makes sense. But just maybe don't use that as a justification for me voting for you is where I end up, I guess, landing as far as the debate and the presidency goes. Yeah. I think another thing and just showing like how Trump kind of controls the narrative and it's more like these, this election isn't about what can we do better. It's about how can we get back to normal? Uh, not just like coronavirus normal, but just like in general, like normalcy in American life is I don't even, why are we talking about, not that like we should always be talking about diplomacy, right? And like military might is always a thing. I do think like, as far as like, world peace and like what's better for humanity should like come first but we're talking about like you know the same way we waged war since you know the beginning of time when literally china has whole agencies committed to uh cybersecurity and you know hacking and interfering with our election the same with russia the same with israel like i would like like that's one thing I do, I did like about uh, the Romney-Obama debates is they were talking about like new things. What different will you do? Uh, what are like some new ideas you can bring forward? And we should really be talking about like foreign policy as like, how are we protecting ourselves from like cyber attacks and responding with cyber attacks? Yeah, I agree with that, but also it's kind of impossible to talk about in these debates with Trump because he always manages to sidestep the question and change it to something else. Like, I feel like if he was, you know, if that question was posed, then he would have been like, well, you know, really what we need to be worrying about is the fact that Joe Biden, you know, his son owes money and there's money from Russia and Ukraine. And like, so that's at least for me, I agree that that should be definitely be um, a conversation, but it's difficult. And I feel like that in general, that these debates are ultimately useless uh, for many reasons. But one of the many reasons is that Trump, he's never been about policy and he will not start being about policy. Everything that he talks about is in a very vague sense when he makes promises. Um, and a lot of times he lies, like him talking about the fact that there's going to be a coronavirus uh, vaccine very soon when we have just seen very recently that like trials had to stop because there were like horrific side effects to these vaccines. So yeah, in, in conclusion, these debates, which thank God they're over, but these debates are absolutely useless. If you are depending on this debate to figure out who you should vote for, then you probably shouldn't be voting but actually do vote and make sure that you vote the right way. I am really uncertain of how I'm going to edit this, but uh, we got like, I think like two more pieces, like just to touch on what you were saying there, Marshall, like 
Yeah, a big part of this for me was the lore fight. I have not been following all the bullshit news stories that have been happening around this election. And I really did not understand the briefcase reference. I don't know what happened with Hunter. Twitter has decided that I don't get to know what happened with Hunter. But I, yeah, like there was just weird moments in this debate where they were saying random words at each other. And it was like listening to two people who were fans of a fandom that I had not interacted with at all. And was just listening to them like be like, yeah, Star Wars for people who'd never watched Star Wars. I did not know what they were talking about. I didn't know why they were talking about it. I didn't know who was supposed to be friends or not friends with Russia and the Ukraine. I didn't know why they were calling it the Ukraine. <laughs> like it was, there was just layers on layers there. I don't know if other folks had that experience. We can move on if not, but just that was a big piece for me was this like, what the fuck are you even talking about? So real quick, because I, I don't have much to say because it's one of the points that I miss, but I do understand these things because I am a, I do go on Donald Trump dot the Donald dot win uh, and the Reddit forums and all of these things where they talk about these stupid stupid things, but they still don't make sense. Um, yeah, that's, that's all I gotta say. Yeah, I think that ultimately it doesn't make sense. <laughs> the fact the fact that like. Trump brings it up and then again, like Biden kind of legitimizes it by trying to talk on it, like, or say like, no, that's actually not what happened. What happened is like, basically he should just shut it down say that's malarkey, let's move on. That has nothing to do with anything. That's how I feel about it. It's an interesting thing of like how you debate that. Cause like that, even that could come off wrong. Like if he doesn't yeah, handle, you're that, right. handle that well, like. It just could seem like, and it, Trump even called him out a couple times of like, hey, you're just like bobbing and weaving around the question. You won't answer my question about how Godzilla controls your mind. It's like, <laughs> yeah, because why would you? But like, it does make you look kind of worse if you avoid the question, quote unquote. I don't know. It's But I also feel like, uh, again, like I don't understand why Biden doesn't push back and be like, okay, you're talking about me not answering a question. Like, sir, you have not answered a question yet. Yeah. All you want to do is deflect towards me and ultimately all he needs to say is that look my son's my son he you know what everything that he did was above board which he basically did say that but anytime that trump brings up any of these ridiculous things he just needs to shut it down and be like no that's not true you sound ridiculous let's move on like you gotta call this man on his bs that's how i feel about it See, but that doesn't work on Trump. He's like, oh, you haven't answered anything. What do you want me to answer? I answer right now. Like, I answer all the questions. Everybody can see it. I'm seeing it. Why don't you see it? That's because you're asleep, Joe. Wake up. Yeah, he did talk about him. Like, oh, people can't be in the basement like you, Joe. Like, they can't just be st sitting in the basement. Like, they have to go and live their lives. And I'm just like, Sir, like he's here out here with you right now. Like we have seen him on bike rides. Like when the last time we saw you do any physical activity and no golfing does not count. Like he just loves to project onto him. That drives me crazy. To touch on another part really quickly, it was just like, as far as projecting goes, the who built the cages point. Uh, yes. Trump has an a impressive, I think what makes Trump potent in some ways is that he's willing to say one or two steps further than the norm would dictate on the Republican side, where you're not supposed to mention the fact that both parties are complicit in mass deportations. You're supposed right. to characterize the other person as complicit. 
But instead, Trump goes like, yeah, no, we fucked up. We did some things, you know? It wasn't great. The, the, the holding cells we've got them in are wonderful, by the way, wonderful holding cells. But, you know, who built the, who built the cages? Like, that's the, that's the kind of brilliance in some ways of Trump is that he's willing to take that extra couple of steps and bring up the fact that, yeah, the Obama administration deport, deported millions of people. And the Obama administration uh, did build the cages, in not all of them, but some of them that Trump ultimately used to hold people. And it's weird to jump to that to like, they were great cages as a talking point, but yeah, that like you're not supposed to be able to do that in our political system. And I think that's what gives Trump some of the zingers is that Biden would never think of taking that step of being like, how is your party complicit in the system of oppression? Well, I would agree with that, except for, you know, he did at one point, this is going back to the crime bill, he did admit that he made a mistake, which I have to say, like, um, you know, I'm not wild about Biden, but I appreciated hearing him say that he made a mistake and he's been trying to rectify it ever since, you know, he voted for that crime bill. And by the way, he's not the only person that voted for that crime bill. Like, Trump likes to act like he wrote the crime bill, he made everybody, like, you know, sign it and put it into law. Um, but yeah, I just appreciate that he was willing to admit that. But going back to the whole who built the cages thing, I feel like um, I feel like it's not even really, I think that both Biden and Kristen Welker both really tried to like hammer home, like, hey, we're talking about 520 something kids who can't be reunited with their parents because you have no idea where they are. And I think that like Biden, not Biden, I think that Trump sidestepped that. But I also think that like, Honestly, I don't think that that outrages a lot of people. Like, I think that it outrages, you know, people who, uh, you know, obviously care about human rights and care about children and stuff like that. But I think that there are a lot of people out there who are like, you know what, these are illegal immigrants, as they like to call them. Um, you know, their their parents are responsible for them being here. So basically, if it's 500-something kids who are separated from their parents because of, you know, their parents' illegal actions, then, like, who cares? So while I think that it's great that, like, the point was brought up and that, you know, they were, he was kind of pressed on it, I also just don't think that that's a point that's going to land very well. And I do think that, yeah, I mean, him turning it around and saying, like, well, who built the cages? Like, yeah, that's a really kind of decent point like yeah who did build the cages and that's uh again a way for him to sidestep the fact that his administration has you know they continued obama's policies and then they also made them much more cruel and they took them to another level by like separating children from their parents and basically ensuring that they wouldn't be reunited ever what i will say that i noticed and it's interesting to bring this black like we i feel like we've talked a lot about like black people so uh, a lot of people who are black republicans i know talk about this idea of victim mentality and how they're trying to get off the democratic plantation and like do for self and uh self-actualize and all these other things but trump is amazing at making himself the victim yeah. Like, even the built the cages has this idea of, like, victim, like, 
Uh, we were left with all these cages. We didn't know what to do with the cages. We had like to put people in. in so we put the kids in the cages. They were great. We improved the cages, though. But it's like, yo, like you didn't have to use the cages. I don't even understand why this is a point. Like you could have thrown the cages away. You could have repurposed the cages. You could have built a wall out of the cages. I don't understand. No, yeah, that that was the part that like, yeah, as always, the logic breaks down because it's just like you could have like recycled them. I don't know. You didn't. They didn't demand that you fill them with human beings. Like Obama left. You know how they leave the note for the next president. Like yeah. Obama's note was just there's some cages under the White House. You know what to do. Series of addresses of the cages. God damn it. Oh man, is there much more here? We've been talking for a while. I don't know. Like the fucking public option. Like. It's not a public option if you if it's just Medicare. That's Medicare. That's not a public option. Fuck off. That's my only thoughts there. That we can maybe leave it there. Do y'all have anything? We can wrap it up maybe. No, that that pretty much covers it. <laughs> Please vote 20 times on a t-shirt. Wait, what? On the t-shirt? On a t- no, it was sorry, it was an inside joke. Uh yeah, no, please vote. There are three of us, Greg. How can it be an inside joke? It's inside of me. <laughs> okay. Well, I think like to, to close things out then, um, the last piece I had here was just sort of this idea that this overall question of is Biden going to win? The polls seem to say yes. Trump seems to be kind of flagging and not, you know, up to his usual tricks and not hitting his bases. But in a way, has Trump already delivered on the key pieces that conservative like politicians, the conservative agenda really needed him to. Like he's handed them the biggest tax breaks in, I don't know if it's our country's history, but it's certainly in the last 40 to 50 years. Um, He's handed them a 6-3 majority on the Supreme Court, also with the thanks of the Senate, um, and the control of most of the federal courts, uh, appointing more federal judges than most presidents, uh, again, in 40 to 50 years. Even... If fascism is off the table, has Trump in some ways won, regardless of whether he's president in like four months from now? I think Trump won just because he'll go down like he like he will for somebody said this in one of my group chats, like Trump doesn't have to be president anymore to like hold the national consciousness. Like starting from uh birtherism. To now, Trump can forever just yeah. go on Twitter and talk politics, and it will it will sway the national opinion. And maybe Obama and all the other presidents could have also done that, but like there was this thing, there was this decorum, there's this you know tradition of just letting the next president run the country, uh, <laughs> and Trump will not do that. Trump will forever be a couch politician where he can say things and people will give it legitimacy and even like Republicans in office might try and and run with it. Uh, So I think Trump won because Trump now gets to forever be a thing. Um, And I think Republicans definitely won. They now have, like I was even talking about this earlier, like what if Trump does win and he decides to expand the courts? And what are they gonna say? Like Democrats just said they they would do it. Why not we do it? Let's like 
So Republicans can now have not a precedence, but like it's now in a national conscious. They can expand the courts. It's now uh, they've got all the judge like they they feel more judge seats than pro- any president ever. Uh, they who knows we'll probably still like it'll probably be another ten years until we find out everything that like uh, Betsy DeVos and all of Trump's cabinets have were up to while they had uh, run of the show. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, Republicans won. Uh, yeah, I have to unfortunately agree. I think that um, we have seen, like I said before, like just kind of this culmination of years of strategy and, you know, policy and um, kind of, again, see, we've seen that uh, come to fruition with Trump. And I also think that, yeah, I mean, as far as, you know, the Supreme Court and federal courts, um, as far as just like breaking down a lot of the former precedents that, you know, presidents set before him, I think that, yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before on the podcast that uh, the danger really isn't Trump, it's what's going to come after Trump, like the the people that feel emboldened, the people that, you know, are like smarter than him and kind of have seen his strategy play out, like they will be able to do a lot more. And I also think that the last, you know, four years of Trump has have also shown like the weakness, the absolute weakness of the Democratic Party. And it's just, it's really frustrating. It's really difficult to live with. But I mean, you know, at every turn we have seen Democrats either, you know, bungle their opportunity to kind of like catch Trump, whether it was the impeachment or it was really, you know, pushing back on um, like some reforms, like, you know, just like voter protection, like over the last four years to make sure that, you know, voter suppression wasn't a thing for 2020. Like we have seen all of these things happen um, again, like with Amy Coney Barrett being pushed through to, you know, with the Supreme Court, um, we're just seeing really Democrats like lay down and take it. And it's absolutely ridiculous. And I think that that really bodes very negatively for what we're going to see in the future, even if the Democrats do win. I think that, yeah, we talked about like what this will be, hopefully, if with a Biden presidency, it will be a reset for our country. But also, I'm not necessarily sure that that's actually going to happen. I'm not sure that the Democrats are going to take these, the steps that they need to and be as aggressive as they need to, to undo all of these things that Trump has done that are absolutely terrible for our country and not just our country, but for the rest of the world. And then also take the steps that are necessary to make sure that whoever comes after Biden is able to actually push the country, you know, in a more progressive um, you know, direction. Like, that's what worries me. I do feel like Trump has won, that the Republicans have won, that there have been so many things that have changed and so many norms that have been broken that I don't really know if this country can come back from that. And that's really scary. And that's really, you know, depressing. But, you know, I'm also just really hopeful that, okay, well, once Biden does win, and again, that's what I'm hoping for. That's, you know, what, that's that's my vision. That's where I am. But um, I'm, I am hoping that, you know, Biden surprises us and maybe, you know, the Democrats really do push him further left on certain things. Um, but I'm not betting on it. So, you know, I'm just trying to get to November 3rd and get past November 3rd and see where we are from there. 
I obviously wrote this last point. I, I do think that in many ways Trump has already won in, in a lot of the important venues. Like if they control the courts, doesn't matter how many progressive laws you pass, if they get overturned in the courts, you've got laws that are unenforceable. Um, and if you're unwilling to break the norms to the same degree as your opponent clearly is, I think you're always gonna be at a disadvantage. And if the only thing holding your democracy together is norms among rich people, I don't really understand it to be a democracy in many ways. I think the conclusions that are drawn from this moment are strange and hard to grapple with. Like at what point do you declare it to be, yeah, I've been saying collapsing empire for a while. At what point do you declare it to be a failing state? At what point do you declare it to be a, uh, non-functioning democracy. Like there's a, there's a lot of labels you can put on our society potentially now, potentially in the next couple of years that I think lead to different courses of action. Um, and I think will gradually influence people's lives more and more. Like I think that for now we're sort of in this realm of like things don't function and life sucks in much the same way it has sucked in the past. I think that we're approaching a new realm of dislocation, joblessness, apparently disease that is, yeah, I think it's something that we haven't experienced yet in the United States. I think it will result in things we haven't experienced yet in the United States. And potentially on the left, if we're looking towards hope, there is the idea that, yeah, we could build a better society and that people could draw together and and support each other through that and build something better. But I, I don't think that is by any means guaranteed. Um, and I don't see anything to avert that decline coming from the, the folks with D's next to their names. My final thought, uh, I've seen people on social media saying that Kristen Welker won the debate because she was able to you know, handle herself and conduct herself in a way that was you know, pretty professional, which is, obviously a good thing. Um, also a point that I forgot to mention was that Trump did say that he is the least racist person in the room. He said that to a black and native woman, that is uh, what Kristen Welker is, she's black and native. So the fact that uh, he would say that he's the least racist person in the room, just again, goes to show you just how like culturally aware he is. Um, but overall, if I had to pick who won the debate between the two candidates, I would say that it was Biden. It was not a terrible night for him. He held his own um, pretty well. And again, just hoping that on November 3rd or, you know, past November 3rd, if we don't have a clear answer, which I'm praying that we do on November 3rd, um, I'm praying that, yeah, uh, Biden will be our, our next president because um, as many problems as there are with Biden, still um he's the the person who i would like to see in the oval office because i don't know if we can survive another four years of trump so yeah yeah i too hope biden wins i hope he wins in a landslide i hope our military does the right thing and carries trump out of office i hope that uh the caucus ones will drink their sorrows away and stay in their own communities uh, and leave alone the minorities who live in their communities. I find it hilarious the way that you described the way Biden won and he held his own. Uh, he, he was not beat up. Like these are not how we usually describe winners. <laughs> <laughs> 
That is hilarious. Um, I hope somebody takes advantage. I hope the third parties take advantage of all this love that they get during presidential elections and take the next election wherever that is for whatever state they're in. And, you know, we start getting third party options that don't just serve to steal votes from the to the top of the ticket. Uh, yeah, that's it. Right on. Yeah, no, I think we already got my final thoughts, so I'm not gonna give another impassioned speech here at the end. Um, this was somewhat a discussion of the debate, and uh, in many ways not. And I hope that that was more enjoyable for you than us digging through the whole debate. Um, yeah, thanks to Marcel and Greg for hopping on. But uh, yeah, I don't know what our next episode is going to be. Don't know when it's going to come out. We kind of rushed out a few here with the debates and uh, the attack on our governor. But uh, yeah, it's been great sharing space with you all. And uh, digging into something other than what came out of the candidates' mouths was uh, very enjoyable. I'll talk to y'all soon. Okay, bye.